Hello, it's Vikas Pota, Chairman of the Vaki Foundation. You are listening to a session from our Global Education and Skills Forum, a place where leading politicians, businesses, philanthropists, activists, and of course, the world's best teachers share, debate, and discover new ways for education to transform our world. Keep the global conversation going and share your thoughts on the topics discussed with the hashtag GESF. Right. Hello, everyone. I'd like to introduce uh, Dr. Rachel Hinton from DFID, the Department for uh, International Development in the UK. Um, and Jesper Ryanen, is that right? Close enough, yeah. Okay. I'm glad, I'm glad. <laughs> um, from, uh, I'm afraid my Finnish is rubbish. So, um, from Grafo Game uh, in Finland. So, we are going to talk today about the importance of research or evidencing for EdTech and what that really means uh, because, as um, some of us know, there are quite a lot of different approaches that are valid to do this. And there, is, there are certain trends in the EdTech industry that sort of seem to be quite predominant. So, um, can I start with you, uh, Rachel? with sort of highlighting a little bit about what DFID is doing in the kind of edtech sphere and how is DFID is approaching that also from a research perspective, either to support the edtech evidence or also to support your own research. So over to you. Thank you. Well, um, it's a real honour to be here, and I'm looking forward to hearing from a, a tech startup as well and how um, they're tackling research. I wanted to talk to you about three things today. Uh, the first is the difference between user research and academic research, as we, we use it in DFID. Secondly, I wanted to uh, give an example of an organization that has used both of these very practically and um, very impressively. And thirdly, I wanted to uh, give you news about how DFID is moving to be a global leader in the ed EdTech research space um, with the launch of uh, EdTech Hub. So, um, on user research, how many people here know what I actually mean by user research? Just a show of hands of, okay, great. So, a lot of you, and that's not really surprising because it's an approach that's really familiar to most tech startups. It's a type of ethnographic research that's very iterative and it really helps with product development. Um, it's often used in you know, digital service development and so on. But what it doesn't um, do is tell us about necessarily the learning outcomes and the end impacts that we're um, seeking. Um, on the other hand, the sort of academic gold standard research is often what the donors are striving for. And that is much more rigorous, robust. It usually takes a long time. It often involves peer review. Um, it may be RCTs that need control groups and so on. And donors, um, or certainly DFID, perhaps aren't as good as that iterative type of um, product development type research. And yet, actually, um, in this EdTech space, we're going to need both of those running side by side um, if we want to make progress. Uh, we know from our um, program of RISE, um, research into improving systems of education, it's a research program um, run out of the School of Government um, in Oxford. Lamp Pritchard is, is the lead of that. And it shows just how difficult um, it is at the systems level, how complex the system can be um, to take 
the kind of tech startups we've been hearing about today with, with all of these um, pictures, um, taking those things to scale. And yet we know that you need the innovation to work as well as the system in which you're trying to take it to scale. So, can I... Yes, okay, sure. yes, but to yeah. just respond to that yeah. from, from your perspective to sort of how you would approach, um, you know, obviously very different type of organizations. You make products, you build products based on, on research and, and evidence. And obviously you're, you're looking at research from a very, very different perspective. Um, but obviously somewhere the two of them have to meet. So yes, but can you just highlight us a little bit, having heard what, what sort of Rachel says, how you as an ethic uh, company start looking at, at research, why, and, and why you also might be adopting a particular methodology, and where you sit on that you know, user versus academic scale. Well, as an edtech company, we're definitely uh, engaging in both. Uh, but uh, I think there is uh, a bit of an illusion with the barrier of entry into academic research. I think it, uh, it conjures up images of having to, um, you know, uh, deal with year-long, uh, you know, donor struggles and then having to deal with, uh, you know, uh, picky academics. And, but actually, I found that there are more and more funds made available by governments and NGOs and uh, donors where they want to actually academically research end products. Uh, and that there's a bit of a trend that I've seen um, certain top-level academics talk about is that they're a bit frustrated about um, researching uh, a tool or a game and then um, it's just left uh, in the glove compartment. No one ever touches it because of the complexity of uh, legal uh, structures between universities and companies. I'm finding that universities are warming up to small companies uh, commercializing their research, uh, they're becoming much more open-minded towards that and, uh, and they see things from our perspective much better than I believe they have before and I think this is a definite trend uh, that we've seen happening. I can see Rachel nod with some enthusiasm. So Rachel, <laughs> uh, would you like to respond to that? Yeah, no, I, I'm just moving to the next slide um, here because I would totally agree that it doesn't have to be difficult and indeed, the example you see behind me on the slide is the example of a UK tech startup, um, One Billion. How many of you know One Billion? Yeah. Great. A lot of people, and not surprising because they're in the top, uh, shortlist of the top five, I think, for the Elon Musk Prize, and they've done a good job of um, getting support both from DFID and other donors. They started in 2014 in Malawi, and what's really impressive about um, the way they work was from the beginning, they recognized they needed both types of this research. And so they partnered with a very, um, very high quality research team, Nicola Pickford from University of Nottingham and her, her team. And within the first year, they had already got two papers out. Hmm. So exactly, um, just to the point there, that you don't have to wait four years before you put a publication out in a top um, quality journal. What's interesting, and I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well, mm -hmm. is that what they're doing now is they realize um, that the costs are also very important. We heard in a panel earlier in this very room from the Minister of Ghana saying, you know, what he cared about was both how easy the products are to use, but also what they cost. They're dealing with a really resource-constrained environment, and it isn't that you can just, you know, it isn't just what, whether it works, it's whether it works at what cost. And yet I think that 
tech companies struggled to capture costs sometimes, and certainly we've been very bad as a sector in having capturing costs in a way that's comparable. So, for example, the global group on building evidence in education, the B2 group, that's a consortium of the World Bank, UNICEF, the foundations, is just in the process of finalizing a guide for those wanting to do research to, in how you could capture costs that take into account you know, the recurrent costs, but also initial mm. startup costs. And if, if I may add to that, um, our, uh, the English version of Graphogame was uh, research in collaboration with uh, the Center for Neuroscience and Education at the University of Cambridge. Right. And, uh, and one thing you notice about academic language in the final evaluation reports is that they do not um, speak to the consumer that actually uh, purchases them, teachers yes. or school administrators. I don't yes. believe they, when they look at an uh, extremely academically written report, that they, they, get, they, they don't often get the, um, how, how big the impact is, really. And my example here is the fact that we made our English uh, Graphogame version, and what was interesting about it was that it showed, uh, in the language it says, it shows no progress, uh, literacy progress uh, over... Um, business as usual. It just says business as usual. However, when you go into the uh, Education Endowment Foundation's uh, sort of category uh, descriptions, you see business as usual means small uh, group activities with a teacher or one-to-one -one activities, which are extremely expensive and they have not given it a price. But uh, a, a small group activity of a teacher, uh, uh, you know, uh, teaching uh, early grade uh, literacy to uh, a group of four children or five or six, compared to an app being able to you know, keep up with that is actually a massive insight. And our app costs uh, uh, 10 quid. So, you know, yes. and it can, it can reach the same sort of base level as, as business as usual. And that's actually, a, I think, a very big insight, a very important insight uh, that the research has shown. But it doesn't, we have to explain it. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. Because that's, that, I mean, what you raise is like a really interesting uh, issue because um, to me, and I might be a bit controversial here, but you're starting not even to compare apples and pears, but you're actually yes. doing apples and lemons. <laughs> because it sort of leaves a bit of a sour taste in the mouth, yeah. having that kind of comparison that doesn't make sense anymore. Mm. Yet it's kind of research-driven. And that's where I sometimes... I mean, I'm a great believer in evidencing and research, don't get me wrong, but that's where I quite often struggle with the concept of research for etec. Because um, this, the... You, you've just given us a prime example. The other, the other uh, thing I kind of struggle with at times is EdTech is also about inf innovation and, and hopefully some level of transformation of education because it ain't working very well at the minute. Um, and so that tension that you then start getting between the research and, and the evidencing, which you may not have been able to do before you kind of go into your EdTech uh, product launch, for a lot of startups, that's like a fundamental issue because you might not have the, the, the funding even to do a small research trial to kind of do that rapid iteration of research. So how, how do you both kind of feel about that? Have I kind of um, well, set the cat amongst the pigeons here or not? I'll just quickly, <laughs> if you don't mind, I'll, just, I'll, just, I'll quickly just say that uh, for us, um, it's actually just fine. Uh, the risk of doing uh, academic research is not that high uh, as expected, really. Because of the existence of, uh, of so many donors, uh, what I often do is I help researchers um, uh, write up the grant papers, and they get the grants, and I ha I'm helping them out, and we are a contractor to them. 
and we just immediately get started, and uh, it, it cost me, it's sweat equity in my, uh, on my part. We just did an stu intervention study uh, with 200, no, 400 children in Holland, and it cost us, uh, I calculated in terms of sweat equity, 2,000 euros, and we, yeah, 400 kids. Startups in the room, you might just want to take note of this sweat <laughs> equity concept for research. Uh, it may, you know, do you some good. So, yeah. 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 Rachel, what about no, you? I, I think uh, there's a lot that of untapped partnerships out there. And I actually think that there are a lot of academics who perhaps haven't worked in the context that you're working in, who haven't got the global reach that you all have, um, who actually would be really interested in... Um, having those kind of partnerships to, to you know, uh, go out and have a look at the real challenges you're facing. I think um, this example of One Billion is also fascinating because their um, research there showed it was so, such good impact. It's software that helps with literacy and numeracy. And in eight weeks of a dosage of a, a daily dose, those children had learned as much maths as they would in a whole year of normal teaching. And it's so good that it actually came back to Oxford. So the picture behind is our Minister of State in my hometown of Oxford um, visiting schools where they then had sort of reverse learning back um, to, to Oxford. And that wouldn't have happened had it not been for one billion being open to and kind of creative with those partnerships in the way you said to bring researchers on board. So it doesn't necessarily mean it's a you know, the, this funding may very well come from elsewhere. Mm. Absolutely. So I'm now going to set the second cat <laughs> amongst the pigeons, probably. Um, RCT. You know, um, it seems to be like the holy grail when, you know, people talk about research. Now, the concept of RCT came from strict scientific background, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and applied sciences background education kind of sits somewhat on a different spectrum because of its contextualization. Um, so if you go to a classroom, even, even within London, you, you, know, you go to two schools, they'll be very, very different. Um, so never mind you know, trying to kind of address that in, in, in different countries and, and, and you know, resource poor versus resource rich, the, 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 all the stuff that we're talking about here. So... How do you kind of approach the RCT and aren't there maybe s smaller but more effective ways of, of, of researching EdTech uh, propositions um, from both the different perspective as well as your perspective? Well, um, I think uh, this is going to sound very simplistic, but uh, <laughs> small-scale RCTs. Uh, so one, one thing we have at GraphoGame is uh, certain language versions that we have, like Swahili, uh, or Chinyanja in Zambia, uh, have often actually been, um, rather than be, have been university-driven uh, research, they've actually been even master's levels theses. And uh, what, what I've noticed uh, about uh, these uh, young researchers is that they, it, they make it their pet project. They put their, their heart and life into it. And, uh, and we've done really small-scale uh, RCTs, like in Indonesia, I believe they had 12 children only. And we're not, we're not claiming that's our evidence base, you know, this is, this is you know, proven to be true. The, the security of the finding is very low, uh, but it, it gets us started. It, it's sort of like a 
prototype of research. With, with, armed with that small-scale mm -hmm. study, we can go to larger and larger donors and say, look, this is looking promising, let's, okay. uh, let's strengthen this. So how do you deal with controls then, you know, um, in terms of and the, the comparison of the... Ah, of the yeah. Well, we are not researchers, so uh, oh, <laughs> we yeah, don't, we don't do this. I <laughs> <laughs> see it. No, but, but I will say that, uh, uh, that uh, I, I'm, I'm not exactly sure how they pick, uh, how they do the randomization. Okay. When, when you read through the research, they've all had different methodologies. But uh, this is generally something that we leave to the third-party independent okay. researcher as a cop Point out. taken. Thank <laughs> you. Okay. Uh, yeah. Would you like to add something to this, Rachel? Sure. I mean, yeah. I think um, at DFID, we feel it's actually really important that we have a range of different methods, and it depends on the question that you want to answer as to which method is appropriate. And in a way, education's been a little bit slow to adopt um, the rigorous research method, and it has in fact been used really successfully to prove um, using a, con you know, the difference with it is that it has to have a control, and so you're able to categorically be able to say this was, um, you know, the impact of our intervention. Obviously, in real, real world, as we were being challenged there by Carla, that can be quite tricky to match your samples if you're creating a control, one group's got the intervention and the other doesn't have the intervention, because there's so many other other interventions coming in, how do you know whether it was the impact of your particular intervention that had, um, had the effect? But uh, as we've heard, there's a lot of really excellent academics. The JPAL lab is, is one that we have invested in quite a lot in education, and they've come out with some fantastic evidence to show us um, research that really works. So we have a paper in DFID at the moment called The Best Buys, and what this shows is, actually, there are some really top, um, you know, the, the mega buys, as Rachel Glenister calls them, you know, the things that we really know would make a difference if you, um, if you invested in them, like the curriculum being at the right level for the children, rather than the curriculum that's pitched so high that half of the class is, is not even understanding what the teacher is teaching, and yet they transition to the next stage and the next stage. So no wonder at the end of primary school we've got 387 you can't, million who can't even... Um, have basic um, you know, literacy by the time they, they leave. So you know, we do feel there's this spectrum. I mean, another lovely example, I, some of you might know Stir. Taraf Jivan is here talking on some of the other panels, and um, they used a randomized controlled trial to look at whether intrinsic motivation could, could, was really, um, could shift learning, and they, they showed that with a control. Now, that's something that many people are very skeptical about. You know, it's always about, you know, it needs more money for teachers, and that's what will make the difference. And unless you can give a minister or a donor the evidence for their decision-making, it's very hard to shift very deeply held and embedded views. You know, we all think it's about more inputs. Well, the RISE um, program shows us it isn't inputs correlate very poorly to learning outcomes. And so when our EMIS system is measuring, giving us data on you know, what the walls are made of, what the floor's made of, how many schools there are, how many buildings there are, those aren't the things that matter. It's the softer things, the coaching, this motivation of the teachers and so on. At this point, I think it might be opportune to open the discussion to the room, mm -hmm. if you're happy yeah. with that. So anyone got any observations, questions? We would love to hear from you. Yeah, second row there. I, I think everyone can. Uh, I think I could say, 
without the microphone. Uh, so thanks for the presentation thus far. I'm Mike uh, from Usambul Biobased here in Dubai. Um, on the research question, what do you guys think about investing public money in the research of a private product? Because the intellectual property is going to be held most of the times by private companies. And if you're saying this is about laying a foundation for scale, that private company can increase their price any time they feel like. So what do you do about that? Oh, I guess I'm the one to answer this. Uh, <laughs> well, and, and, yeah. well, I'm the donor No, 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 well. of course. Uh, no, uh, that's an ethical issue we, we, uh, we bump into regularly. And, uh, for example, there's a fund in Chile that was willing to fund us and then uh, found out about this, uh, you know, our proprietary source code uh, thing. And uh, one of the requirements was that the end product needs to be open source. And, uh, and we personally believe uh, that... Uh, Putting public funds into private sector businesses is not necessarily uh, as controversial as you might think. This is something that governments do regularly to uh, prop their economies. And the amount of money that is actually put into proving a product that uh, it helps children learn how to read, the money that they put into that is minuscule compared to the money that they put into, for example, bailing banks out. Um, uh, so, uh, so I, w I know it's not necessarily an answer, uh, but I would say um, on an ideological level, I would say that it is not necessarily something that is that strange that public uh, uh, funds go into supporting uh, us uh, in the private sector. Uh, can I just let Rachel yeah. respond as well? So, so we'll come to you. Yeah. my next slide might help answer this. Um, I, I'm in absolute agreement that actually at the end of the day, it's about whether you're if you're creating products that will save governments money in the long run, then absolutely we need to be supporting innovation and, and inspiring and, you know, uh, catalyzing the innovation. And that's why um, DFID is actually about to launch in May an education technology hub, a research hub, which is a £20 million investment over eight years because we think it sometimes, you know, it does take time to do these things and to iterate and to learn, and then to learn at scale. And this is being done in partnership with the World Bank. And um, it has these three strands. So it has an innovation strand, which is absolutely about supporting and, and catalyzing, but at the same time having iterative learning, along with an at-scale research strand that's more you know, robust research. Um, and then a central hub that will help support and be a call-down service to countries or tech um, providers who are wanting to try and look at and, and really test out and are serious about getting evidence behind their product, including the costs. I recommend that those who weren't here um, check on YouTube tomorrow whether the panel on um, how politicians can help accelerate uh, edtech with Minister Prempe from Ghana and uh, former State Secretary from uh, uh, Mohammed from Kenya. I highly recommend on this question that you maybe go and look at that panel because there were some interesting discussions around that as well and there were some very interesting answers on it. So I, I would recommend that you check tomorrow whether it's, um, it's been recorded and on YouTube because you might also find the panel itself really, really interesting. Uh, so, um, Kirsten. Hi, Kirsten from Buzu. I just wanted to, was it you who made the point just now about, uh, I think, trust and the financing of research. So I represent a private company and we have paid for efficacy research into our product. 
because it's very specific research, and frankly, we would never get an academic or government institution to do that research for us. It's too specific, and they have other concerns, it's expensive. So really, paying for that research to be done was the only route for us. But I've seen teachers be very critical of that approach, and I totally understand why. I just wanted to kind of come back and say, for us, there was no other option. So I really welcome DFID taking steps in this direction and any steps in this direction. We would love to have truly independent RCT-based research into our product. It's just not currently possible for us. Thanks for that. Um, a question here at the front. Thank you. Um, I want to know what's the impact of the academic research in terms of development of the product? And then the other thing is a lot of research around education has been more ideographic because of the nature of, of, of education. Yeah. But we're now working on a scale where we can actually start to understand learning differently because of the large numbers of people we're dealing with on these sorts of apps. So I wonder what the impact is there on our understanding of learning and education more generally. So, uh, as in, uh, what the research has, how has it impacted us as a company, or as yeah, a, yeah. Platforms? So, so are you using this research that's coming out to in, to influence how you improve your product? I assume you are, but is yeah. that what's happening? Well, so uh, in our English version, I think that's the best example. We did one iteration. So we made a, uh, we we had uh, the Finnish language methodology for our literacy game, and uh, uh, we uh, approached um, uh, the academics in uh, Cambridge to to localize it into the English language. And we created a basic grapheme phoneme correspondence game that was, you know, uh, yeah, just, just basically a translation of the Finnish version. It was studied, uh, it was research, uh, it was, they did an intervention study on that and uh, they found that there was almost a negative effect, actually. And that, uh, we went back to the drawing board, uh, shocked by the results, uh, we, that, but then extremely informed about exactly where the, uh, the mistakes were. We knew exactly what parts of the game were, uh, were, uh, were ineffective, which parts were effective. And actually, after that, the iteration was surprising surprisingly easy. Uh, it, it happened very fast, um, and we basically changed, I think, 60% uh, of the content, and so the 40% 40, 40 stayed, and now in the next research, it's not good enough in my opinion still, but we got great feedback on the second one, uh, second evaluation uh, that we did, which showed us that Graphogame does not work properly unless uh, teachers, if there's a, unless there is a rich oral curriculum and uh, syllabus uh, surrounding it, and that Graphogame on its own will not do anything that you need to have, uh, you know, a good teacher. You have the context needs to be there. So um, I'm not sure if it answers your question uh, entirely, but it constantly um, lead, it, it gives us insights with which to make uh, better business decisions and how to make better products for teachers specifically. And that's what we actually try to do. We're not trying to make literacy games for uh, kids. We're making them for teachers, and we're listening to what teachers are commenting about the game and how they're engaging with it. So we wouldn't get that with user research, really. Uh, in this level. Yeah. Okay. Great. So I, I'd like to, um, well, first, first to the lady, sorry, I didn't catch your name, um, but if anyone is interested in knowing more about the EdTech Hub, please um, do give me your cards, and Jamie Proctor, who leads this work um, in my team, would be very um, keen to get in touch with you and let you know more. But to answer the question yeah, um, at the yeah. macro level, so I'm interested in all of this learning, and what does that mean for governments at scale? 
And to give you one small example, um, IPA in Ghana did a piece of research on early childhood, and one of the findings of that RCT was that actually what was working and having impact um, at the scale they were doing it in terms of um, young children and using a new pedagogy for learning didn't then translate into impact when they went to scale. And one of the reasons was that the head teachers weren't supporting and monitoring the use and giving feedback to their teachers in, in that use. And that learning didn't just help with that program, but actually the government of Ghana took on that lesson and changed the teacher training um, TTEL program they had um, to bring that learning into thinking about how to strengthen the skills of head teachers. And so learning can, you know, it, it can have also impact that is much bigger and, and going to have wider, you know, repercussions. Okay, we've got time for one final question. Um, so, over. Thank you very much, panelists. I think research is an interesting area. Uh, I've been hear you very, well. very interesting, and uh, I come from Uganda. I'm from Uganda. It's one of the challenging areas for third world countries is research. And today, research in our countries is largely based on uh, an attempt to look for a funding and uh, with the social, um, civil society emerging as key actors in uh, education and other fields. You find that uh, we look at what funders want to, to pay for rather than what is really most likely to be the, the need of the people of that country. So the researchers now are very, very biased towards saying what is trending eh, among the funders. And I think this has become a very, very, very big challenge to research. And uh, that explains why many well-recommended researchers, when they go to implementation, they really fail. I have not seen how feedback from uh, the intended beneficiaries. Now, now, he has said user research is toward targeting the teacher. How are we targeting that learner, that student, to get feedback before we do the final recommendation that this can actually work? So that is my big, big challenge, and I have seen it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, who would like to answer to this? Yeah, both of you? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's an excellent question, and I think there are two parts to that. And having visited Uganda recently um, and looked at the data you have there, I think um, we've, got, we've got an issue also with feedback flows on, on data within the country. And tech could really, really help at the very fundamental level of the system. So um, when, when your you know, government is trying to look at which schools are failing, which teachers are turning up, we know we've got high levels of teacher absenteeism, but we don't necessarily, if you go to a school, um, they don't get the data that they feed back to the center back to district level or to school level. And so it's a one-way traffic of data. And tech could really help if, instead of paper and pen and feeding this all um, in a manual way, smart tech could really help speed up those accountability channels. But to your challenge around whether, whether the research being done is useful to the countries, I think that is a huge problem. And yeah. one of the best um, examples of changing this I've seen is actually in um, India, where inside the Ministry of UP, they've actually put themselves um, what they call an evidence lab inside government. So they, um, 
instead of sending the data back to you know, the, the capital, they actually use and analyze the data themselves, say, what's this telling us? Why are these schools failing? Why are those not? What questions do we need answered? And then they commission the research themselves from inside government. Um, and another member of my team is actually working on a program called Knowledge Systems Strengthening to try and give an opportunity to countries, governments who want to set up evidence labs inside their own ministries to support them with the skills they need to utilize their own and analyze their own data better and commission research that is useful. Yes, Per, I'm really yep. sorry. Yep. We're running out of time. That's but what I is. suggest is um, you're both here. You're all here. Um, we need to move on to the next panel quite soon. Yeah. But um, obviously, people can come and talk to you, I take it. Absolutely. Um, so please do. And I would like you to thank you both very, very much for joining us thank and you. for um, willing to do this panel. Thank you. Thank you very much.